It's becoming pretty clear in the book of Acts that whenever the gospel is preached, there are two reactions. Every time the gospel goes to a new area in the book, some people believe and others don't. We saw that in Cyprus at the start of this chapter, uh, the first stop off on this missionary journey. The gospel is rejected by a Jew called Elymas, uh, but it's accepted by a Gentile called Sergius Paulus. Uh, we see the same thing here at the end of chapter 13. As the gospel is proclaimed in Pisidian Antioch, some people joyfully believe the word, uh, whereas others angrily oppose it. And we're showing this repeatedly in Scripture so that we will have the right sort of expectations as we share the gospel with others. You've probably realized at this point that not everyone you share the gospel with is going to believe it. You've probably realized that that not everyone who starts coming to church will keep coming, Uh, that some may even profess faith, be baptized and then fall away. We saw that with Simon the Magician back in chapter 8. What a testimony he had, or or seemed to have, and yet it turned out to have no root. And if we don't know in advance that these sorts of things will happen, we'll be totally shaken when they do happen. If people walk away, we'll we'll look at ourselves and we'll ask, "Well, well, what did we do wrong? Uh, so we need uh, this expectation. We, we, we wish it wasn't so, uh, but God tells us uh, that it will be like this, that, that, that many will believe, but some w- will seem to believe, but then walk away. But yet, on the other hand, the Bible uh, gives us the, the tremendous expectation that, that, that many will believe, uh, that there will be a tremendous harvest. And if we didn't know that in advance, we'd be discouraged And when we went through spells of not seeing anyone converted or or any new people at church, we might conclude, well, well, people just aren't interested. Uh, And we might even stop aiming at conversions because we wouldn't be expecting them. So again and again in Scripture, we're, we're prepared for the two reactions that we'll receive to the gospel. But this morning we want to look not simply at those two reactions, but at the reasons for them. We want to go behind the curtain, as it were, and see what the reasons for these two reactions are. In other words, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, why is that? Is it because there's something better about you than your next door neighbour, that means that you believe and they don't believe. Or if you're not a a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, or or you are, but those you try to speak to about the gospel just don't seem interested. Is it just an intellectual thing? Is it that you need to come up with better arguments because uh, your arguments somehow just aren't convincing? Or is there more going on? So, as I say, we're we're going to go behind the curtain today and look at the reasons for these two different reactions to the gospel. And we're going to do so under two headings. Uh, And each one of us here today fits into one of these headings in one way or another. 
Uh, So firstly, this morning, uh, we see jealous Jews who judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. Jealous Jews who judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. It's a week since Paul preached his first sermon in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. Verse 43 told us that there had been a a tremendous reaction to it. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. That, That means they believed their message. And then the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered together to hear the word of the Lord. And that's what it means to to come to church, by the way. It's above all to gather together to hear the word of the Lord. To decide not to come to church would be to, to decide to do something other than to listen to the word of the Lord. But for those who God's spirit has been at work in, it doesn't cross their minds to do anything else. The next Sabbath, they are there. They come back the next week and they bring others with them. By the way, that little phrase, the word of the Lord, is used three times in these few verses. It's emphasizing that this saving message comes from the Lord Jesus. That it's not Paul's message It emphasizes that this is what the Jews are rejecting. They're not simply rejecting the word of men, but rejecting the word of the Lord. And by the way, that's the only thing that we have the authority to tell anyone else that they must believe. We may have strongly held opinions about lots of different things, But all that I can call people to as a minister of the gospel, all that that you can call an unbeliever to, is to obey the Lord as he speaks in his word. And yet often when people are presented with biblical reasons why they should do something, they don't respond by saying, well, okay, yeah, it says it in the Bible that I should do it, so I should do it. Wonderfully, we do see that happen at times. But often not, and it's not even that people will come back and say, well, well I, I've, read, I've read that passage and I don't think it's saying that. But rather often people don't obey the word of the Lord simply because they don't want to or they've never done it before and they don't want to start. Responding rightly to the word of God, it's not something simply for the start of the Christian life, but it's to be an ongoing thing. And here in Antioch in verse 45, the Jews refuse to submit to the word of the Lord. And that's a a very dangerous place for anyone to be, uh, for any of us here to be, for anyone else to be, to refuse to submit to God's word. And the question we want to ask today is why? Why don't they believe By the way, the word Jews here, it probably refers to the Jewish religious leaders because we've already seen that many of the the Jewish people did believe. But but why don't their leaders? Well, the first answer that we're given here is jealousy. Jealousy. 
Do they reject the word of the Lord because they've heard Paul's great sermon uh, full of these illustrations from the Old Testament showing how it all pointed to Jesus uh, and they think, they, they think that he's wrong? Is theological opposition at the root of their disagreement? Well, that's not what we're told here. We're told that first and foremost it is jealousy. Uh, and yes, they will reject what Paul's saying, but, but first and foremost, the reason they do so is jealousy. Almost the whole city is gathered together to hear the word of the Lord, but, but that's not the way the religious leaders see it. Uh, they see it as almost the whole city gathered together to hear Paul, and they are jealous. Their, their rule, their, their status in the city, which goes back however many years, it, it's under threat. And that jealousy determines how they react to Paul. We're told that they began to contradict or speak against what, what was spoken by Paul. But at the root of it all isn't their theological disagreement, but it's their jealousy. And this isn't just a, a one-off. It isn't just this set of Jewish leaders Back in chapter 5, verse 17, that when the apostles were still in Jerusalem, we were told that the high priest and all the Sadducees who were with him were filled with jealousy and they arrested them. In chapter 17, verse 55, in Thessalonica, uh, we'll read about the Jews, again probably the Jewish leaders being jealous and attacking the house of a man called Jason. Jealousy, jealousy, jealousy and jealousy is always a horrible thing to see isn't it but particularly so in the church and among the leaders of God's people of course the Jewish leaders they, they would have denied that they were jealous of Paul they, they would have said we're not jealous it's just this man's blaspheming but God tells us that jealousy is really what's driving them and it is sadly possible to see not just Jews jealous of, of Christians, as we see here, but to see Christians jealous of Christians. Maybe we see other Christians and they have gifts and abilities and life circumstances that, that, that we don't have, but that we wish that we had. And rather than rejoicing at what God has given them uh, to be used for the building up of the church, the temptation is to be jealous of them. Or we see other churches or, or ministers being blessed and seeing people being converted or otherwise coming and joining the church. Uh, and it happens at a season when we're not experiencing the same thing and there's a temptation to be jealous. And it's a horrible thing. At times we can even end up feeling jealous for the sake of someone else. We think that, that someone else will, will be put out by, by this and so we're, we're resentful on their behalf. When actually their character is more Christ-like than ours uh, and, and they're not bothered by what we think they'll be bothered about. Do you remember when, when Joshua told Moses to stop the people prophesying? Moses said to Joshua, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Joshua was jealous on behalf of Moses, 
but Moses, he wasn't jealous at all. So the Jews here were jealous. Now, it's not, not, not always jealousy that stops people believing the gospel. But even if people raise all sorts of intellectual concerns about Christianity, at the heart of it, their objection is usually a lot more fleshly. Like that time when Herod arrests John the Baptist because John keeps telling Herod that he's committing adultery. Herod could have come up with all sorts of pious sounding reasons for arresting John and for not becoming a Christian. But at the end of the day, his opposition to the gospel was because he wanted to keep on living his sinful lifestyle. So because the Jews are jealous, they contradict what Paul says. And we're told at the end of the verse that they were reviling him. The word means to speak in a disrespectful way that demeans, denigrates and maligns someone. And again, it's horrible. It's not a Christian way to speak about anyone. Never mind someone who's trying to do them good the way Paul is here. Some of the things that we say about other people should maybe frighten us more than they do. If someone claims to be a Christian but regularly speaks about people in a disrespectful way that demeans, denigrates and maligns, then that claim to be a Christian must be called into question. 1 Corinthians 6 says that revilers will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's how serious it is. And this jealousy here, it stops them listening to the word of God. And Paul sums up the response to God's word in verse 46. What does he say? He says they had thrust aside God's word and judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. It's very interesting that in verse 48, the, pe- the reason people don't believe it, or the reason people do believe is attributed to God's sovereignty. And we'll get to that in our second point this morning. The reason people believe the gospel is because they've been appointed to eternal life. Uh, we're told that there in verse 48. Uh, And the opposite does apply. On the most basic level, the reason why people reject the gospel is because they haven't been appointed to eternal life. Jesus said to those in his day, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. He didn't say what we might expect him to say, which is you don't believe, so you're not my sheep. But what he actually said was you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. Or to use the language of verse 13 here, because they hadn't been appointed to eternal life, they weren't ever going to believe. But does that mean that it's God's fault that they don't believe? Not at all. Unbelief is sin. And in Acts 13, that sin is laid at the feet of the Jews themselves. Verse 46, because you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Eternal life was on offer to them. If they had repented and believed, they would have been saved, but they didn't reach out and gratefully receive the gift that was on offer to them. 
And no one will ever be able to stand before God and say, the reason I didn't believe in Jesus was because I wasn't chosen. And no one will ever be able to stand before God and say, I wanted to believe, but I couldn't. Because if the gospel has been preached to them, then they've had the opportunity to repent and believe. But the fact that they don't means that they have judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. Not that others have judged them unworthy of eternal life, but they have judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. Uh, and it, unworthy, that, that word, it clearly doesn't mean they were too humble to accept eternal life, but it means they were too proud to accept it. They didn't think they needed it. They proved themselves unworthy of accepting of eternal life by rejecting their own Messiah. Uh, and in verse 50, which we'll look at in more detail next week, God willing, uh, along with the next chapter, they persecute those who do believe. Although we see that for many unbelievers, rejecting the message themselves isn't enough, but they feel the need to follow the rejection up with persecution of those who do believe. And so we see firstly here this morning, jealous Jews who judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. <coughs> if we really believe the gospel, it will make us humble. It will take away jealousy because we'll realise that it's not about us anymore. We'll realise that it's about the growth of God's kingdom by God using us in whatever way he decides and using others in whatever way he decides as well. It's about God giving us what he knows we need and about him giving others what, what he knows they need. A real relationship with God will make us humble. But the jealousy of these Jews showed what was really going on in their hearts and they judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. What a terrible thing to be said of anyone. Will it be said of you one day? It doesn't have to be that way. Stop fighting against the one who the whole of the universe is about. The universe isn't about you, it's about Jesus. So bow the knee before him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you'll find out that your salvation was appointed from all eternity. But then secondly, this morning, we see glad Gentiles who glorify the word of the Lord. Glad Gentiles who glorify the word of the Lord. What would you have done if you'd been faced with the unbelief and rejection that Paul and Barnabas faced here? It would have been easy to become demoralized or, or bitter or even to return reviling for reviling. They've had so many encouragements, so many people uh, turning to the Lord, but it's always easy to focus on the negative. But what stops Paul and Barnabas doing that? What, what stops them returning reviling for reviling? Well, one reason is because they have absolute confidence in the purposes of God. Uh, they say, verse 46, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, but now we're turning to the Gentiles. So was this them turning to plan B? Was them saying, well, well plan A has failed, the Jews aren't interested, so now we'll move on to plan B. 
Well, no, but it was simply the next step of plan A. In God's purposes, Jewish rejection was to lead to Gentile blessing. Jewish rejection was to lead to Gentile blessing. And as Paul would go on to say in Romans 11, the final step would be then in turn, Gentile blessing would lead to Jewish blessing. But this had been part of the plan. Remember how Paul had been called directly by the Lord Jesus to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Remember how at the start of chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas had been set apart and sent out across the Mediterranean Sea to the Gentiles. So taking the gospel to the Gentiles, it had been part of the plan all along. And in fact, it goes back much further than these last few chapters in Acts. It goes back to Isaiah's prophecy quoted here in verse 47. In fact, it goes all the way back to God's promise to Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him and his seed, uh, particularly his great descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. So promises and foretastes of the gospel going to the nations have been there right throughout the Old Testament. But the Jews just hadn't got it. Their prejudices had blinded them to it. One of the clearest prophecies came through Isaiah, uh, quoted here in verse 47. In the book of Isaiah, it's a big, it's a big book of the Bible, one that, that I hope God willing to, to, to begin preaching on relatively soon. Uh, but one thing that's good to know about Isaiah is that there are four passages known as the servant songs. And they speak particularly clearly of the Lord Jesus and of what he would come to do. Uh, Most of us are familiar with the fourth servant song, even if we don't know that that's what it's called. Uh, It's found in Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, If you're not familiar with it, it would be a great one to read this afternoon. Uh, Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Jesus came, but, but such a clear description of what he suffered on the cross. So Isaiah 53, it's the fourth servant song, but it's the second one that's quoted here where God says of his son, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's the mission of the Lord Jesus. But Paul can quote it as something he's been commanded to do because he's an instrument in the Redeemer's hand. Remember how the Lord Jesus had used that very word instrument when he was commanding the reluctant Ananias to go back and see Paul in chapter 9. When the Lord had said, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. Boys and girls, maybe you know what it is to, to have seen someone play a musical instrument. Uh, I, I know for for. For some of you, there are musical instruments in your homes. And, and if, if someone plays a musical instrument and it's, it's lovely music, well, if that's, if that's a harp 
or, or a violin or, or a trumpet, then if people hear them, they don't go up to the harp afterwards. They don't go up to the violin or the trumpet and say, well, that was great music because they know that the person playing the instrument is the one who has produced that great music. Uh, and it's the same with, with us and with the Apostle Paul. We are just the instruments that God uses to, to, to play the music of the gospel, that, that through us people would hear the music and that people that they would that they would say not oh oh how great you are but that they would say how great Jesus is we are just the instruments so remember that the next time you see someone playing a musical instrument uh, and the Lord Jesus had said to, to Ananias about Paul, go for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles so the Lord Jesus is the, the, the ultimate servant of God, commissioned to be a light to the Gentiles. But he fulfills that mission here through Paul and Barnabas. It's the acts of the risen Lord Jesus by his spirit through the church. And in fact, the Lord Jesus told us at the very beginning of the book of Acts that this is what the mission of the church would be about. Remember chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus had said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and in all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I've quoted that, that, that verse almost every week as we've been going through Acts. But where does that phrase come from, to the ends of the earth? It comes from this verse in Isaiah. It's a prophecy of Jesus' mission, which in the book of Acts he is fulfilling by his spirit and through the church. So the mission plan for the book of Acts, which is mapped out back in chapter 1 verse 8, is actually mapped out even further back in the prophecy of Isaiah. And in verse 48 here, when the Gentiles hear this, they, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. We're told that they began rejoicing and we're not told that they ever stopped. Maybe, maybe some of us have stopped. We, we, we were converted and we began rejoicing. But, but we can feel our, our joy waning and grinding to a halt. It, it should not be. And, and to get that joy back, we, we need to, to go back to the start and see, see the, the gospel continually. The gospel that saved us. The saviour who, who saved us. So they reacted with joy. How, how do you react because we're all Gentiles today. None of us are Jews. But the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ has reached all the way to Scotland. So don't look at this just as the record of something that happened back there. This mission that began in the book of Acts, it didn't end there. But it's kept going and going and spreading and spreading until it's reached us. And it's still going and still spreading right around the world. And so as we think of this prophecy that Jesus would be a light to the nations, we should look back at our own salvation with thankfulness. And we should look forward with confidence. Imagine that, that reaching this community for Christ depended on us or on the other believers in the town. Imagine that, that it, it depended 
on us, that it depended on, on our friends in the Baptist church, that it de- depended on, on other believers here. Well, well, that would be a burden way beyond what any of us could bear. But actually reaching this community is first and foremost the mission of the Lord Jesus. God has made him a light to the Gentiles that he might bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. First and foremost, it's his mission. It's only secondarily our mission. We are his instruments, but it's his mission. We read here in verse 49, And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Uh, and why, why is that? Is it because of Paul and Barnabas? Not at all. It's because the risen Jesus is at work in that region by his Spirit. And what a thing for us to pray for, uh, for Southwest Scotland, for Wigtonshire, that the word of the Lord would spread throughout the whole region. Uh, maybe if you're visiting with us today, that's something that you could go away and, and if you think of us here, pray for us. Pray for the churches in Southwest Scotland. Pray that the gospel would spread here. That on track or, or just about Dumfries and Galloway, that the least churched, the least churched area in the whole of Scotland. So, but God's spirit is still at the same, and God's spirit is still at work, and His message can continue to spread. And in fact, because it's Jesus' mission and not our mission, we can be confident of success. We've touched on verse forty-eight already, but look at it again. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The testimony of the Bible from beginning to end is that we don't choose God. But he chooses us. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. We chose him. Why? Because he first chose us. Now we don't usually realise that when we become Christians. We think that it was about us making a decision to follow Christ. And we do have to make that decision. But once we're saved, we realise that he chose us before we ever chose him. To be saved is to see, see the gate with the inscription, knock and it will be opened to you. And we go through the gate and we, and we think that, that it's about our knocking. But, but then we go through the gate and we see the inscription on the inside, which says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And the fact that God has already chosen people should be a spur on to our evangelism, not a restriction on it. In chapter 18, the risen Lord Jesus appears to Paul in Corinth and tells him to keep on speaking because he has many in that city who are his people. Corinth was a city that was so full of flagrant sin that it makes some of our modern cities look tame. But the Lord Jesus told Paul to persevere and to keep on speaking. Because as he did so, he would find out that even in Corinth, there were those who'd been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And so we can never look at any town, any city and think there's no point. Because God would say to us, the Lord Jesus would say to us, I have many people in this city. Perhaps in your more discouraged moments, you might think that we'd be better shaking the dust off our feet. Uh, 
After all, that's what the apostles do here in verse 51. Such is the lack of response. Uh, perhaps we think that, that we might as well uh, move on somewhere else. But actually, in the few places in the Bible that we see Jesus' followers shaking the dust off their feet, it's always as a testimony against Jews. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 10, the Lord Jesus sends out his disciples, telling them not to go anywhere among the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And if anyone didn't receive them, they were to shake the dust off their feet when they left the house or the town. In that day, Jews would shake the dust off their feet and clothes when they returned from unclean Gentile areas. It was as if the, the very dust of those places was going to make them unclean. And so Christians shaking the dust off their feet against Jews is deeply significant because it's saying that Judaism itself had become unclean by its rejection of their Messiah. And if there's any equivalent of this for us today, it would be more in terms of those who've heard the gospel over and over again and have had opportunity after opportunity to to repent. And there might come a point where so much time and energy has been spent on those who sit in pews but don't respond to the gospel that the focus has to move to those who've never darkened the church door before. So the apostles shake the dust off their feet and go on to the next city. But notice, by the way, that this isn't about the Christians pulling out of Pisidian Antioch. It's about the apostles moving on. But they leave behind disciples in verse 52 who are filled with joy and the Holy Spirit, even in the midst of hatred and opposition. And as we close this morning, what a contrast we have in this passage. Jealousy on the one hand and joy on the other. The unbeliever is suspicious and inward looking. They stand on their rights. They cling on to the things of this life. Whereas the believer has a joy that's not dependent on circumstances. And it's all of God. We can't look with any pride on the fact that we are Christians and others aren't. And if we do at times get frustrated with the blindness of unbelievers... We need to remind ourselves that the only reason we believed is because God, in his kindness, for no good in us, had appointed us to eternal life. And because our faith is grounded in him, then we can have a joy and peace that the unbeliever knows nothing of, even if all the world around us be in uproar. And so we've pulled the curtain back this morning to see why some people believe and why others don't. But what we can't pull the curtain back on and see for sure in this life is where any one individual stands. But deep down, ask yourself the question this morning, which category am I in? Are you defensive and jealous? Do you see the gospel as a threat to living the way you want to live? Or have you humbly embraced it, knowing that you don't deserve God's favour, but that in his grace he has chosen and called you to be his own? What a difference there is between these two categories in this life, and what a vast difference there will be for all eternity.
it's not too late to cross that divide. Satan would like you to think that it's too late, but it's not too late. But one day soon it will be. And so now is a day of salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen. Well, let's respond to to God's word now by singing a psalm which talks about two categories of people. It's Psalm 106 on page 258. Psalm 106, page 258. Verses 1 and 2. Bubble over with joy at God's goodness to us. Verse 4 shows the heart of someone who has been chosen by God. And that is... uh, Their heart is that they want to see God's other chosen ones prosper. Your chosen ones to prosper, I would say. If we have been appointed to eternal life, we want to see others who've been appointed to eternal life prosper. It's not about us and our kingdom and about what we can get out of it, but it's about sharing the gladness of God's heritage. It's about praising God with his people, not being jealous of them or thinking we're a cut above them. Uh, And then in verses 5 and 6, there's the acknowledgement of sin, particularly the sin of not responding rightly to God's great work of salvation. And by God's grace, may that not be a description of any of us as we sing these words to God, but may we, by God's grace, respond rightly to to what we have seen in his word today. So Psalm 106, 1-6, if you're able, please stand as we sing.